imagining the man that was walking by a bush. And when the man walks by the bush and he hears a rustle in the bush, it can either be the wind or it can be a tiger. If you walk by the bush and you assume it's a tiger and it happens to be the wind, there's no poor repercussions, right? You got startled, it bothered you, but there's no harm done. What you don't wanna do is walk past the bush and assume it's the wind and find out it's a tiger. That's when you put yourself into a poor situation and a potentially fatal one. This is David Ote. I'm a strength conditioning coach in the New York City area. I'm a certified strength conditioning specialist through the National Strength Conditioning Association. And you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast. In the wake of all the media buzz surrounding Jordan McNair, a 19-year-old University of Maryland football player who died two weeks after being hospitalized following a team workout on May 29th of this year, I decided to have my friend David Ote on as this week's featured guest. David is a strength and conditioning specialist based out of New York City. He's also the 2015 Fitness Manager of the Year for Equinox and has been featured in several major fitness publications on the topics of strength and conditioning. He recently wrote an article titled, The Fine Line Between Building Toughness and Being Destructive, after several current University of Maryland football players and people close to the organization describe the toxic coaching culture under head coach DJ Durkin and strength and conditioning coach Rick Court before offensive lineman Jordan McNair's death. After we hear from David, you hear an excerpt from episode 38 with Dr. Douglas Casa, CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute and both a survivor and an expert on exertional heat stroke. So I'm really excited to have uh, David on and kind of talk about his article and really like, you know, I guess we could start off with just, you know, asking, you know, what about this story really struck a chord with you that made you want to write this article? Uh, first and foremost, thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, I mean, I think it's just a devastating situation. I think anyone that hears the situation has been shook uh, to a different level. I know you and I both playing the sport and being involved, uh, you know, know the severity of how how far we can go from a toughness standpoint. And I think in any circumstance, what really struck me hard in this was understanding that the situation actually occurred in the end of May, uh, resulted in his death, unfortunately, June 13th. And we were just getting to the conversation now on, you know, the first week or two of August. And I think that's really what's the most concerning part for me. But I think in any case, if, if we if we lose somebody's life and it's it's such a avoidable expense, especially with a young man of his age uh, and of his character of everything we've heard, um, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed and addressed to everybody that's at hand. Yeah, it blew my mind that this is like the first time I'm hearing about it. Like a week ago when this happened back in May, I'm like, how is this the first time I'm hearing about this? You know, it's like a huge deal. And now it's become a huge deal. But like, how was it, you know, kind of kept in secret for so long? Absolutely. I think that's where the that's where the biggest issues come to play when it comes to the culture of the University of Maryland program. And it's, I think the the outreach of the university now and the president having their speech and and making their statement, that's all good and well, but it's only good and well if that would have happened when it initially happened. If the investigation would have happened at that point, I think that's really what the whole purpose of the article was, was to address, you know, really from the coaching standpoint, what are the things that we can do on a daily basis to either identify when we're uh, seeing some of these symptoms to make sure that we can avoid these situations. And I think really just a self-evaluation method of, am I doing what I'm doing for the right reasons? uh, Or am I doing it you know, out of malice or out of ill intent. Um, because in the end of the day, a strength coach's job is to maximize performance and overall look over the health and safety of their players. 
And in this case, the health and safety was not overlooked. So the position for Rick Court was just simply not being done, uh, which was an easy dismissal. Right. And that's a great way to put it that, you know, the they're supposed to look out for the player's health in general. You know, like a lot of people think of or associate strength and conditioning with kind of preparing your body for, you know, battle, if you want to put it that way, when it comes to football and trying to like avoid injuries. And in this case, it's kind of kind of seems like the health, you know, aspect kind of they lost sight of that a bit. And you can kind of see like how you can kind of go down that road, especially when we think about kind of that culture of toughness and that old school mentality of, of uh, football, which Absolutely. me and you both kind of grew up in. Yeah. Um, yeah. David and I were crosstown rivals uh, in, in high school, uh, but we <laughs> ended up going to Rutgers together and had some uh, mutual friends bring us yeah. together. So what would you say your definition of toughness is today? Um, I think, well, I think toughness can be looked at from two lenses. Toughness can be physical toughness and toughness can be mental toughness. Um, you know, there is the physical toughness, you know, someone doing well in the combine or, or how strong they are or how much they can endure from a physical standpoint. Um, and then there's stories I've heard of, um, you know, military personnel doing tests, whether it's in the Navy where they have to, you know, undo a certain knot underwater. And I've heard stories of, of, of people actually passing the test, even though they didn't do it in the allotted time because they technically drowned during the test. And they were luckily revived, but they passed the test because the job is not necessarily to see whether you do it or not. The job is to see whether you're willing to give up or not. And I think that's the fine line that gets really tough in this because the the toughness standpoint is, are you willing to push your boundaries to the limits really for the better well-being of yourself and or the team that you're involved with? That can be um, your athletic team. That can be from a family standpoint and you taking care of your family. Do you have the toughness to uh, endure specific things knowing it's at the expense of one thing for the betterment of your daughter or son or husband or wife? Um, So there's so many facets to it, but I think it's a matter of how close to your line can you get? And the toughness, in my opinion, from that is understanding, do I know where that line stands as well? And do I understand that? I can't go beyond that because there are detrimental circumstances that come past that line. Yeah. And I, I really like how you put it as you know, the statement of it, an expense because it does come at a cost when you cross that line. And I'm someone who luckily survived from crossing that line. And like you said, like you do it for your team, you do it for your family, you do it for, you know, a, a slew of reasons, you know, to that you want to try to get close to that line. But if you ultimately do cross that line, there's a, a cost that's paid. And in some cases, in this case, it, it ended his life. And in my case, it ended my football career and almost my life. So yeah. I just think that's a, an important lesson to learn. So has, has this definition evolved for you um, since your athletic uh, career and, uh, and over the course of your professional career? A- absolutely. I think, you know, going from the lens of being an athlete to going to the lens of looking at the overall health and perspective of either a client or an athlete, um, you start to see these signs, you know, like I think most people can acknowledge that you are most likely or hopefully a more mature and smarter human being. Now that I'm going to be 30 at the end of this year versus me when I was 18 or 21. Um, you know, you have that level of invincibility when you're younger and you think you can do certain things and bounce right back. So, I know from this view of seeing health and and how detrimental certain things can be, whether it's head-to-head contact, whether it is 
you know, overexertion in the heat, whether it is testing yourself all the way to that limit. Um, yeah, I mean, my definition has definitely evolved. And I think that's just, you know, from becoming an old man, you know, and seeing how important these things are and understanding in the grand scheme of, of life, there are much bigger things um, that I can focus my mind and my and my attention to. Um, and that, that is, it's not as important in the, in the long run. Right. Hopefully some of those uh, young bucks listen to this and actually absorb the information and the advice uh, that we're giving out. Hopefully. Um, yeah. So I have a couple of quotes from an ESPN article that was written about this story that kind of sheds light on the cultural issue that was kind of evolving within this football program. And I, I kind of took these out because I know in your industry, you know, I'm sure there, it, there's a lot of testosterone crazed individuals and a lot <laughs> of like alpha male um, you know, people out there. So I'm just, I'm curious what your thoughts are on these. So, uh, one of them is it shows a cultural problem that Jordan, the individual who passed away, knew that if he stopped, they would challenge his manhood. He would be targeted. One of the, one of the current players said he had to go until he couldn't. Um, then another quote uh, is we always talked about family, but whose family talks about you like that calls you a um, sissy and a female dog in lighter terms. Uh, you know, there's, there's multiple instances of, you know, the coaches talking to those players like that. So, you know, in the world that you live in, you know, how do you kind of overcome or get away from, or I guess how common is that kind of like talk and that kind of mentality and how do we kind of combat that? Um, I, you know, I think very fortunately with the brand that I work with, with Equinox, it's not as common, but in the industry as a whole, it's very common. I think we understand that the gym industry and athletics are driven on, um, you know, bigger, faster, stronger. Like, can you, you know, how, how powerful are you and how much can you do? You know, like the Instagram followers and influencers in the world are not the ones that are bench pressing 135 pounds. They're the ones that are deadlifting these heavy weights and doing these incredible things. So um, I think there definitely is a cultural problem with that. And the main issue is thinking that, um, you know, if someone doesn't do something, it's because they're not manly enough or they're not tough enough or they're not whatever the situation is. Um, that's definitely a big, big problem when we look at it. I mean, we look at, at you know, shows such as Hard Knocks, which a lot of people will watch. Anyone that's watched the most frequent or the most recent hard knocks sees these players that are on the edge of potentially getting cut and understanding this is their dream. And I would say a large majority of those players have severe injuries, but understand if I do not continue to play through the injury and this injury, I'm on the cutting block anyway, and they will let me go and I may never get a shot again. So I think that's the difference in mentality some of these players look at when it's either high school looking for that Division One scholarship, their D2 scholarship, whatever, or that Division One player looking to potentially sign with a team, get drafted, whatever, start. Um, that's in the back of your mind, and, and, and I, that's a tough thing to avoid, especially at that age. So, um, you know, it's something we'll always have to endure, but we can hopefully gain more knowledge in it so people make better decisions. Right. And in your article, you had mentioned that how important communication is um, between a client and their, uh, and their trainer or mm -hmm. their, you know, strength coach or whatever. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of like a communication issue, you know, like this is how they're talking to the players and everything like that. So how do you foster a, a positive, you know, culture of communication between your clients and 
how can you see that translate into uh, the setting of uh, strength and conditioning coach uh, with a team? Uh, I think it's a matter of, you know, candor to be very transparent. As honest as I can be with somebody is only as honest as they can be. And somebody uh, only cares what you say when they know you care. Um, so the important thing that I need to do is create the relationship and understand that it's no different than any other one and any other trust you may have, whether it's with a spouse or with a good friend, you don't immediately build trust in the first time you talk to somebody. It takes getting to know their personality and understanding that. So in the situation from the University of Maryland of what it sounded like was Rick Court was more of a, um, you know, more of a commander that was dictating out things and, and yelling things. And it wasn't a very comfortable environment to be in, which when you're pushing the limits, it may not be as comfortable as you would think. But if the, if the players in an in immediate instance couldn't answer the question, do you think Coach Court has your best interest at hand? And do you think this coach would pick up your phone call at midnight in a, you know, a time of distress? The immediate answer should be yes. The immediate response, it shouldn't be even a question of that type of thing. So um, I think those are the situations we run into is we need to understand that we build this relationship so someone can feel comfortable in that situation. Um, it's directly on the coach. It has, it has very little to do with the player. It's more about creating the proper environment for somebody to thrive in. Okay. Uh, good advice. Um, so another point you brought up in your article was how similar the symptoms of a heat-related illness are uh, to uh, just a tough workout. So how do you kind of decipher as a strength and conditioning professional, you know, between the two and know when to kind of pull the reins back versus – you know, maybe try to get closer to that line. I mean, I think the difficulty with the strength conditioning field at this point in time is, um, you know, the, the, the building blocks of strength and conditioning takes a lot of years of volunteering, graduate assistant, um, being an assistant coach, moving up the ranks. So when you finally get to run your program, you want to run it your way because you've taken eight to 10 years of your life building to that one moment. Um, we have so much technology at our fingertips at these points, whether it's GPS tracking, um, whether it is uh, looking at heart rate monitors, any of that type of stuff. Um, we have a lot of things that we can make better decisions with. Um, and that is really the main focus of how we're going to be able to uh, make a difference in the long term. So for instance, um, I was listening to a talk by the athletic trainer of the Jacksonville Jaguars, and he was speaking about uh, his time when he was with the Atlanta Falcons. And they would do tracking on the pressure and power that certain athletes use in certain situations. So what they found out, long story short, was that Julio Jones uses three times as much force when he's planting for a cut than any other receiver on staff. Roddy White, Mohamed Sanu, Julio Jones put in three times more pressure. So based on that, Julio Jones did one-third the reps that the other receivers did just based on the numbers. We're not going to put more undue stress on him now that we have this information. So first, I think the information is important. And second, you always have to err on the side of caution because some of the signs of somebody being overexerted, uh, imagine if they were running outside. If anyone runs outside, you're going to be sweating, red in the face, heart racing, temperatures increased. Uh, maybe a little foggy, whatever. Um, but the signs of overexertion are flush, maybe oversweating, racing heart rate, dizzy, nausea, 
uh, upset stomach. I think the key thing is we should err on the side of caution. And the main thing, either from a fitness and or strength conditioning standpoint, is understanding that throwing up is not a badge of honor. Throwing up is the system's response to say that we are either in distress, there is something toxic here, or something needs to change. We should never, we should never applaud somebody throwing up from a workout because that means that we've overdone it or someone was not in an optimal situation. And again, that goes back to square one. Am I concerned with this person's health and performance? And if you can't confidently say that, you shouldn't be in the position. No, that's a great way to put it. It kind of goes back to what, yeah, exactly what we were talking about before. Um, another thing you mentioned in the article, which I thought was important, was the uh, idea of having an appropriate baseline level of fitness and kind of like, and this is a topic I talk about a lot on the podcast, um, is the idea of like earning your intensity. You, yeah. you can't just like go from zero to 100. You got to kind of like, you know, build your sure. build yourself up to that. Yeah. Um. So how, how do you kind of approach that as a strength and conditioning professional uh, in your field? Well, I think you have to do, you, you have to do the appropriate testing first. Um, but I think misinformation from a cardiovascular standpoint happens far more than misinformation from a strength standpoint. Because uh, I know we can both speak on, you know, maybe we have the member or the person or the athlete. That doesn't work out for a while and then say January hits and everyone – the New Year's resolutioners will come back out. And most people will either do a P90X program or they'll go on Shakeology, do Insanity. They'll do the Navy SEAL workout, whatever it may be, right? And we need to understand that if I were to ask someone that never lifted weights in their life and said, let's do your one rep max today. Let's load up all the weight we can on the bar and let's see what you can do. I'm going to argue you're going to say that's not a safe thing to do. But from a cardiovascular standpoint, people will try to run sprints. They will try to run up hills. They will do the Stairmaster. And it's no different because intensity is intensity, except this intensity is direct on your heart, your cardiovascular system, your arteries, your veins. It's very detrimental. So I think it's that evaluation of creating a foundation for something that's massively important because if you're not doing your lower cardiovascular stuff, if you're not working in heart ranges of 135 beats per minute to 140 beats per minute, roughly three to four days a week for distances of time, you should not be sprinting because it's no different than loading the bar up and doing a one rep max. Um, but from a cardiovascular standpoint, that's where we see the biggest misconceptions for sure. No, that's, that's really interesting that you, you say that because people don't really think of you know sprinting as a, a – potentially dangerous exercise, but I can 100% see the danger in it um, by doing that. So how often do you use technology like personally on like with your clients? Like how much a part of it of your job is using technology? Um, I think it, it has to do with a person by person basis. I think heart rate is something that is definitely tracked if the person has the capability to do that. So I would always recommend to somebody to, you know, buy that polar heart rate monitor, buy that Garmin heart rate monitor, whatever it may be. Um, and I think there's other things that we need to focus on from other perspectives. So sleep tracking is probably the newer thing that is coming out um, from a tracker standpoint. So, you know, whether somebody's buying uh, alarms that mimic sunlight as it slowly wakes you up for 30 minutes in the morning, there's a lot of new ones that are coming out like that now. Uh, even sleep bands that will wake you up with a light vibration on your wrist and they're, they're smart trackers. They know a 30-minute window of when you're starting to toss and turn, they can rate your quality of sleep. 
I think a lot of that stuff comes into play because from the large majority of what we see is increased stress, especially even with these student athletes. Um, you know, going from a high school athlete to a college athlete is night and day. You go from doing this recreationally in the afternoon and then, you know, going back to school in the morning to college being a full-time job. So stress is just increased and the focus is just increased. So in those circumstances, you know, we may want to look more into the fitness tracking, but, um, you know, fitness trackers can go as complicated as GPS to as uh, basic as using a Mead notebook, a calendar and a pen and paper, you know, like we can track right. things however we want to. We don't need it to be as complicated and expensive as it needs to be, but we should be measuring stuff. Okay. Uh, before we get away from the monitoring your client slash athlete, um, what are some tips that you have for strength and conditioning coaches or things that you do to become more aware of signs of overexertion and injury with your clients? Um, I think it's part of that communication, like I talked about earlier. Again, you want to err on the side of caution when it comes to specific things. Um, I heard a, a really good uh, proverb a while back that really stuck with me. And it was imagining the man that was walking by a bush. And when the man walks by the bush and he hears a rustle in the bush, it can either be the wind or it can be a tiger. If you walk by the bush and you assume it's a tiger and it happens to be the wind, there's no poor repercussions, right? You got startled, it bothered you, but there's no harm done. What you don't want to do is walk past the bush and assume it's the wind and find out it's a tiger. That's when you put yourself into a poor situation and a potentially fatal one. So I think you always want to err on that side of caution, but I will always ask my clients if at any point in time, if you feel tired, sore, fatigued, dizzy, or just generally uncomfortable, please let me know and we'll stop right now. Because I think them understanding that if something just does not feel right, it is okay to bring that up because I can either put their mind at ease that it's a common situation, it's something we see every day, or Maybe we should evaluate a little more. Maybe we should send you to get a second evaluation from a doctor, get a better look at it, do some physical therapy. Maybe that little pain isn't just a little pain, um, but communication is paramount in that. Dude, I love that. That was a great story. <laughs> um, all right. So another thing I, have a, I thought was interesting from one of the articles that I uh, was reading about this story was um, – this one player said, as soon as you sit down or as soon as you sit out a run, you feel a little dizzy or lightheaded. You're not in the champions club anymore. And I guess the team had this champions club and you had to hold a certain standard. But part of that was like not sitting out drills and stuff like that and kind of pushing yourself, pushing the limits. So it kind of made me think of like, what are healthy reward based incentives that you might use um, to kind of, uh, I don't know, just some goal setting things that you use with your clients that aren't going to put yourself in a dangerous situation. Um, yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I think someone not being dizzy and not being lightheaded after it makes you in the champions club. I think that's that's a it's a pretty crappy way to look at it. Um, you know, I, th I think we need to measure individual progress on a regular basis. I think strength and conditioning is getting much better at that. We're starting to see that we need to train the defensive backs different from the alignment, the alignment different from the linebackers, the skills player different from the big guys. Like there are differences in that, which um, uh, which are great changes that are happening in the industry. And, and there are plenty of people that, you know, I've I've had the pleasure of knowing and working with. Like, you know, Mubarak Malik with the New York Knicks has been a director of performance for them for the last five years. I know him very closely. 
he's done a really great job with with the players that are there from a much more integrative level. Um, you know, Jerry Palmieri is a close colleague of mine. Um, he was the strength coach for the Giants for for the Tom Coughlin era and has done an amazing job while he was there. And I've learned so much from him that people are doing things right. I think the proper ways to reward them is by letting them know they're doing a good job when they're doing a good job and letting them know they can do better when they can do better. I think it's 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 really as simple as that. I don't I you know, I don't believe in um you know, extra, you know, you guys can have this snack afterwards if you did this. Maybe it's, you know, you get to come in a little bit later in the morning. You want to find uh you want to find rewards that will benefit the health and performance of that human being, not that will just make them smile for the immediate future because the benefits of the long term, whether it's that extra half hour, hour of sleep in the morning, we know is only going to help them from a performance standpoint. And I think that's, you know, if we're looking at that, we need to reward them in that manner. Right. In- intrinsic uh, rewards versus extrinsic rewards. Yes. Uh, okay. As we kind of wrap up the conversation here, um, do you think that the Maryland football culture, is it a Maryland football culture issue or a football culture issue? Or uh, neither? I. Well, I, I think it's neither and both. I think from a – it could potentially just be a Maryland culture issue. I think from a strength and conditioning issue, we can do a better job of being more aware of this. In the grand scheme of everything, I think this is a society issue. The issue that mainly happened with the situation was a lack of communication – and an unwillingness to where if this is, is – say it was – say it is a poor culture because right now this is just an allegation. Say it was a poor culture right. at the University of Maryland. What we're assuming is that during that time, if you are not willing to stand up and say that something is wrong, you are complicit. You are allowing something to happen that you know is wrong. And in the end of the day, there's a difference between being right and being right. There's one that's playing by the rules and doing whatever the rule says and that is – that's right in one manner, or you have to stand up and sometimes do what is morally right. And in my opinion, somebody didn't do what was morally right. So that's not just a University of Maryland thing. That's not just a football thing. That is a workplace thing, a life thing. There are a lot of situations where, you know, if we feel that morally something is different, we need to be willing to stand up if we know wrongdoing is happening. So yes, I do think it's a mix of all of that. So what we do is we make sure that we're helping support the, the best things possible. If we see someone's in harm, I speak up to make sure that they are not in harm anymore for the proper reasons, that I'm taking care of that. If I feel like I'm in a strength conditioning program that is not doing right, it is my job to bring that up so that we start doing things right and we can start making those changes. And unfortunately, like in this circumstance, it shouldn't come to the, to the fact that a 19-year-old kid, a young man, loses his life at the cost of this. The important thing also is understanding that Rick Court and the University of Maryland staff were just the ones that were unlucky enough to have somebody die because there are multiple instances that this probably happens in multiple strength conditioning programs all over the country and all over the world. And they were fortunate enough that the kid bounced back. So I think this was just the one story that sticks out to everybody. But what happens next and how we treat the industry and how we treat our athletes going forward is a dictation of what we do from now on. And I think that's the important thing. What do we see the NCAA do past this point? What do we see strength conditioning coaches do past this point? What do we see the certifying uh, accreditation facilities do past this point? 
that's on us. So, you know, it, the ball's in our court right now. No, I think that's a, and that was a great distinction that you made before between, you know, doing what's right and doing what's morally right. Cause you got examples of, you know, the me too movement, you got Penn state, you know, all those instances are kind of examples of exactly that. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Last, last question before we wrap it up here. Um, have you ever been in a position where you were afraid to speak up and have you ever suffered personally from not speaking up? Um, I'm fortunate enough to have not in that, been in that situation. Um, and you know, I think it's, listen, some people may hear my opinion from the last answer and say, well, you've never been in that situation. And it's a hundred percent accurate to say that, right? Like we, we all can say how we would act in a certain situation until we are in that specific situation. So I do think that's important to acknowledge. Um, I've unfortunately, I've fortunately never been in a situation like that where I felt that I needed to. Uh, really stand up and say something to write what I believed was uh, firmly wrong. Um, but, you know, I also hope I'll never be in that situation. But if I am, I know that with myself, I would, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing what's right. And if I'm not in that situation, I will remove myself from that situation. Um, I want to be able to lay my head down and go to sleep at night, knowing that I did everything possible to help people around me and to do what was good in the grand scheme of of my life and my life story that i do so um i think it's important just to encourage those around us to to stand their ground dave thanks so much for sharing your insights into the industry and for um you know giving your opinions on, on the story as well and i, I thought it was a great uh, little intro to our um next little excerpt from episode 38 with uh, douglas casa So thanks a lot, Dave. Thanks a lot, Kevin. Good talking to you, bud. Now you will hear an excerpt from episode 38 with Dr. Douglas Casa, CEO of the Corey Stringer Institute, to learn more about how we can prevent tragedies like the one we talked about today in the future. So what did the athletic trainer do to kind of save you, essentially? Well, thankfully, the athletic trainer was with me immediately, recognized it was heat stroke right away, and began cooling me on site. Um, They did have an ambulance on site as well. Um, and um, he got me started cooling, got me in the ambulance right away. They continued cooling during transport, um, and when I got to the hospital, which was um, thankfully only like five minutes away, um, soon after getting there, within five or ten minutes of getting there, they also were aggressively cooling me um, in an ice tub. Um, so I, d- I didn't have um, that many minutes of being extremely hyperthermic, so right. that was probably the, saved, the yeah. big save my organs from uh, having that that kind of severe damage. And we're going to hear about a story in a little bit with uh, a guy named Gavin Class that you worked with. Yeah, so it's a different outcome there. Oh, yeah. So. Uh, what was your transition to life after sports like? Um, so that, yeah, so, I mean, for a couple of weeks, I was completely exhausted and just like, even like walking to the fridge was like tiring. Right. Um, so it took me a couple of weeks to kind of get my energy back. Like I said, I was very lucky and thankful um, that I didn't have any long-term complications from the heat stroke in terms of, you know, real medical issues or conditions that I had to deal with. So it was more getting my heat acclimatization back, my fitness back, um, and, you know, really resting. Um, But I ended up having a very successful, so that was August 8th. So I had a very successful senior fall um, cross country season. So it really so, didn't limit you. No, so to... I was able to get back. Um, it, it took me out, I'd say for a couple of weeks, but I was in such good shape when it happened that I was able to bounce back pretty quickly. Pretty quick, yeah. 
awesome. Mm-hmm. It seems like you kind of lucked out, kind of like I lucked out yes. uh, in terms of how bad it, it could have been. Um, okay, so can you give us some background on the Corey Stringer Institute? Just, you know, I know who Corey Stringer is, but people listening might not know who sure. he is. Um, and then we'll, we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, so Corey Stringer was a, an awesome offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings. He was an um, all-pro um, player. He was a former All-American at Ohio, Ohio State, State University. Right? Yeah, read that. So he, um, um, in the the summer of 2001, when he was um, when he was, came to training camp, this was um, his fourth season. Then? I think it was the start of his fifth season. Start of his yeah. fifth. Okay. So it was um, late July, um, and Minnesota was undergoing just a brutal heat wave. In fact, it's probably the worst heat wave in recorded history for Minnesota. Um, like temperatures over 100 degrees, um, successive days of brutal heat. Um, well, they had the first day of practice. Um, they didn't really make any modifications to practice, even though it was brutally hot. And they had like a two a day and it was just an exhausting day. Um, and he, you know, suffered probably heat exhaustion that day and um, was not feeling well, wasn't feeling well in the evening, was probably likely very dehydrated and, and tired, um, was was um, that during the practice on the first day was vomiting at practice. Um, nauseous, obviously. So those are symptoms of heat exhaustion? So not, not necessarily, but he didn't have a heat stroke the first day. There wasn't like any collapse or like um, CNS dysfunction. Right. It was just um, just the heat really just completely like kind of knocked him out physically. Okay. So you would uh, consider that something called heat exhaustion? It's a heat exhaustion, yes. Yeah. So heat exhaustion and stro- exertional heat stroke are two different medical conditions. Okay. So you, you can't die from heat exhaustion. It, and heat exhaustion is not an issue of like um, overheating. Right. All right, so that was all day one, but then on day two, once again, it's still really hot out. In the morning practice, I, I, I'm just guessing here, but I'm, I'm thinking he probably really wanted to prove himself after the first day didn't go well. Right, thinking that like, he was not in shape or whatever. Correct, and and there was on the front page of the the newspaper um, that morning, I believe Tuesday morning, um, was a picture of him throwing up on the cover of the paper. So he saw that paper before going out to practice that day. Right. That from, from day one. So that it's like a toughness thing. Like exactly. the whole reason why I didn't say that my head hurt me was because I wanted to be tough. And right. And you don't want other people to you know, to question that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so that might have been a motivator for him. So he worked his butt off again, like he always did at practice on on Tuesday morning. Um, but this time it was a, a much worse outcome. And this time. Um, towards the end of practice, his body was getting dangerously hot, really hot, and he um, suffered an exertional heat stroke. I um, mean, unfortunately, he was not aggressively cooled um, for a very long period of time. In fact, um, like almost like an hour and a half later, he was still um, like in the 108, 109 degree range at the hospital because um, he was not transported immediately. Um, if, if if he was going to be cooled aggressively on site, it's fine to not be transported. Okay. But he was not cooled aggressively on site, but they just kept him in the trailer. Um, and then he was transported later. Do you know why? He, did they just not recognize that it was heat stroke? My or? guess is that they thought it was a heat exhaustion. Okay. That would be my, my best guess. Um, but unfortunately, you see, the thing is with exertion heat stroke is, is people kind of assume that you have to be unconscious or like in a coma when you have right. heat stroke. But a lot of people are not unconscious. And a lot of people can still even have some somewhat normal cognitive function, meaning they could have a potentially a small conversation or, right. um, so I guess part of the time he was in the fetal position in the trailer near the field, but he was never completely unconscious. Um, and he, you know, was, I think maybe able to respond in a couple word kind of responses, um, right. to the athletic trainer that was there. Um, and they maybe just put a towel on his back and, and some very small kinds of things, but obviously he was just grossly hyperthermic at this time. And, 
um, a lot of minutes were lost at this time. And just in the span of 15 hours after that happened, he died in the middle of the night when, when Tuesday pushed into Wednesday, early Wednesday morning, he passed away. Wow. I mean, there's definitely athletic trainers that were on site there and it's kind of crazy to, I mean, you probably think that these like NFL athletes are like the top athletes, you know, some of the top athletes in the world and then they'd, they'd be able to handle these kind of conditions and stuff like that. So you can kind of see how they might take it on the easier side or less aggressive side. Um, but this exertional exhaustion or um, heat exhaustion versus exertional heat stroke, it's interesting to me. It's like it's the fine line of like, do you treat heat exhaustion the same way as you would treat exertional heat stroke so that's a, that's a in question. terms of like trying to cool the athlete down? Yeah, if you if you thought someone was suffering a heat stroke, it's always better to assume the worst. Right. You know, because cooling a heat exhaustion person, there'd be no problem with that. Yeah. Yeah. So always assume the worst and you need to get a rectal temperature. Um, obviously, assess, assessing cognitive function, this all has to be done within a few minutes. And if if someone is like above 105 degrees, um, you assume it's you know, obviously a heat stroke at that point. You aggressively right. start cooling them down. Um, so um, the thing is with heat stroke and obviously the really painful thing with the Corey Stringer's case is that um, heat stroke is 100% survivable um, when your temperature is brought under 104 within 30 minutes. Okay. Um, and that is over 2,000 cases we've tracked between athletics, military, and laborers. Um, so it literally, up to this point, you, you can't die if you're cooled aggressively right. from what we know so far. Um, and we actually just published a paper recently of 274 heat strokes we've treated um, where we had a lot of specific data on. It was 100% survival with no known long-term complications when people got rectal temperature done right away and they were put in a cold water immersion bath, you know, within 10 minutes of collapse. Okay. So it's important to have ice and cold, like hot or cold tubs, like... Yeah. So we recommend that at every high school football field in America in August and, and almost every college does now and every NFL team does. I mean, and even like a youth practice, like how much would it cost you to buy a tub and fill it with water and get a bag of ice, you know, like... Yeah, and, and yeah, so yeah, I mean, it's tough to say if like every youth field in America, if it's just one team practicing, if there's a field that has like 10 fields... Multiple, yeah. And that might make more sense, but... The, the key point is, is for parents, coaches, and athletes to understand the key thing is getting your temperature down as fast as possible. So even if you don't have a tub, you certainly could have a big, huge cooler there filled with 15 towels, ice, and water. Right. Every field can have that. Yeah. And you take all their equipment off and then you just put freezing cold towels over their entire body. And then, you know, every minute or two, you know, exchange it back in the cooler and reintroduce freezing cold water again on the skin surface. And you could cool them down quite effectively with that matter. It's not quite as fast as cold water immersion, but you're still going to save the person's life if you're able to start that right away. Right. What are the common symptoms of exertional heat stroke? So like that an athlete would exude and a trigger should go off in your head and be like this kid or athlete or guy, girl, whatever, um, needs to cool down. And uh, like, what kind of symptoms were you having? Like, what what puts an athlete at risk? Like, why did you suffer from heat stroke that day? Was it you didn't drink enough water, or just because of the the weather, or a culmination of a lot of things? So that's a lot of questions. So I'm going to splice those. Yeah, out. sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. So the first was mentioning things like uh, signs and symptoms or early warning signs. So the unique thing about exertional heat stroke is about 50% of the cases of heat stroke don't have any prodromal signs and symptoms, meaning that you don't necessarily see things before it takes place. So the first indication there's a problem might be the person collapsed unconscious in front of you. 
So that was the case with me and right. my heat stroke. I really had no, I mean, I was hot, but it was hot outside and I'm running really hard. I so was, I've been hot that. in millions yeah. of races. Yeah. Um, but things they might be able to know that would be great educators for athletes and parents and coaches is things like um, people have headache, dizziness, lightheadedness, nausea, vomiting. Um, things are a lot harder than they usually are. Like if you're always exercise in 90 degree weather and you're used to this intensity and it feels this way, if it feels just a lot harder than usual, that might be a warning sign that, that something is a little more challenging. And then obviously for the, not, this isn't going to help the athlete themselves, but other people, like if someone has, is struggling cognitively at all, like concentrating in practice, like they're not following the directions, they're slow to respond. They're um, obviously unconscious or things like that. Any kind of CNS dysfunction, central nervous system dysfunction, um, during intense exercise in the heat, you should definitely be thinking, you know, cardiac issue or heat stroke issue. The last point was um, um, what causes someone to have the heat stroke. Like on that given day, you said I was I dehydrated. Right. You know, so there's a lot of things. I mean, the, the biggest factors that drive your body temperature up during activity um, are the environmental conditions, the intensity of the activity, the amount of equipment or clothing you have to have on, your hydration status, um, if you're heat acclimatized or not. Um, and then maybe some individual factors like maybe supplements or medications you may be taking. Okay. So those six items are the things that, you know, when the, um, when, you know, kind of the perfect storm, when certain things come together, maybe really intense, a lot of equipment, they're not heat acclimatized and it's really hot out. Those, you know, it's, it's many of those factors coming together. Right. And that's like a lot of the stories that I've read on the KSI website are with offensive linemen. You know, you have the hot summer. You got a lot of equipment. You got big guys. Um, and that was going to be one of my other questions is like, does the size of the athlete, does that matter? Like, do you see a trend in it's a lot of the bigger guys that, that tend to get it? But you said like you're in your own case, that wasn't necessarily true. Yes, yeah, so that's a good question. So in football, yes, the offensive and defensive linemen um, by far um, seem to have the most heat strokes, maybe 75 to 80% of them are happening in the bigger linemen. So I definitely think it's okay. a risk, risk factor in the sport of football. Um, running is a little bit different because um, it, the, the, in America, the two sports that have the most heat strokes are, are ironically, American football and distance running. The um, two opposite yeah, ends exactly. of the spectrum. Yeah. And the, the reason is, is that in distance running, it's um, uh, the intensity where they're like, if you're trying to keep a certain pace or meet a certain goal during a workout or a race, and you're not heeding your body's warning signs that, you know, you're going too hard. And in a football practice, it usually happens when someone else is controlling the intensity or the pace. So like the coach is saying, okay, you're not going to have any breaks, um, but we're going to go this hard for this length period of time. So even the football player may feel like crap, you know, during the workout. Yeah. He can't necessarily make any modifications because it's being controlled by an external influence. Right. And it's tough to speak up and exactly. say like, so I'm yeah. sure you can relate to those. Tapping out. Yeah. Yeah. For more information on episodes relating to exertional heat stroke, visit headsandtails.org backslash podcast backslash 135.